Thank you very much. Hopefully I'm not booming. Am I booming? Excellent. I tend to boom a lot, as you would all know. Well, why don't we pray before we get, get started. Father, we just thank you so much that we are people who have been gripped by your gospel, gripped by what you've gone through for us in our place so that we may be reconciled to you, that we may have a personal relationship with you. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, that you would use my feeble words, my feeble explanations, but you would speak clearly through your spirit as you shape our hearts, as you bring clarity to our minds, open our ears, and change us to live lives glorifying you. Amen. Well, as I was um, thinking about this prayer, these first five verses this week, I was reminded of my time in school. You see, towards the end of school, both primary and high school, you get that little bit more freedom. You get a little bit more uh, freedom and even a friendship with your teachers. Who knew such a thing existed? But it reminded me of the times where I would go to the front office or I'd uh, be meeting a teacher and I'd get to peek inside the teacher's lounge. You know, I'd get, I'd get a geese while I was waiting and I'd see the teachers in their natural habitat. I would see that they're actually normal. They're actually human beings. Who knew? But I'd see these younger teachers hanging together. They'd be chatting. They'd be throwing around a bit of banter. But the older vets who had been copying children for years upon years were sitting, reading the paper, sitting on their phone, alone, not smiling, no laughing, just trying to claw through another day. But you probably know, and your experience might have been similar to mine, that the, the teacher's lounge was a sacred place, the holy of holies. There is no way a student would dare enter. But when I get a peek inside, it was like pulling back the curtain. And so today, it's quite similar. It's like eavesdropping on Jesus. We get to peek inside as Jesus comes to his father with the high priestly prayer. It's like being able to see into the intimate prayer life of our Lord Jesus. And the question that we're faced with today is, as we look at this, do our prayers long for the same thing? Now, obviously, there are some respects of his prayer. None of us are going to be saviors of the world. But do our prayers long for the same thing? Do, are they shaped by the same outcome that he wants, the glory of his Father? And it's interesting when you come to this point, right? So when people think of the Lord's Prayer, generally we all think, well, Matthew 6, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, yada, yada, yada. But that's actually the way that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. They said, teacher, teacher, how do we, how do we speak to you? How do we pray? And he says, well, do this, X, Y, Z. But here, here in chapter 17, we actually get an insight into Jesus' relationship with God the Father. This is actually the true Lord's Prayer. This is the high priestly prayer. And so right off the bat, we see it doesn't occur to Jesus to do his work without praying. 
And when you think about it, of all people who'd be able to do their work without praying, he's probably the most worthy. But it doesn't occur to him. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what Jesus prays. Firstly, he prays for himself in these first five verses. Then he prays for his, the apostles in 6 to 19. And then he prays for all the people that would come to be his disciples in the future. But today, I just want to step through these first five verses in two points. Number one, glory of the cross. And number two, glory of the crown. So firstly, glory of the cross. Please have your Bibles open because I'm going to keep uh, throwing you around. Fortunately, it's short verses, but hey, I want you to check what I'm saying is right. So I want you to notice the four words that we have right in the center of this opening verse. The hour has come. What does that mean? Well, the word hour is actually a a really loaded term in John's gospel. Uh, We might say it's the appointed time. It's the moment, the event of the son to die. That's what the hour means. And so when we think about it, Jesus is fulfilling his role in the father's plan. Before the foundations of the world, before the world was created, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit They entered into a covenant relationship together. They sat around, probably didn't see, that's a bit anthropomorphic, but they decided who is going to do what in salvation. And so Christ came to exercise ministry and move through his life, fully aware that he's working to a timeline. He was working to a timeline that God the Father had destined for him. And the awareness of Jesus to this timeline has been evident as you look through the book of John. He's kept saying, my time has not yet come. The first time he says it, it's to his mum. Wants to turn water to wine at the wedding of Cana. And he says, woman, my time has not yet come. Everyone's perplexed. And so would we be. But then again, when he, he keeps going through the chapter, people keep trying to seize him and he says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. We reach chapter 12. We reach chapter 12 and he says, my time's come. Chapter 13, it's come. 17, it's come. I'm about to die. Events have been set in motion towards his death. And so now he's asking God the Father to make his death and resurrection glorious. Now, how can the gruesome death on a cross be glorious when it's such a terrible thing? Well, when we, when we think about it, we don't just need to think about death. We can't limit it simply to the fact of Christ's death on the cross. Actually, what we need to see and what we need to understand is that he means the entire point of his earthly ministry, the consummation of his earthly ministry. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coronation is all tied up in this hour. Jesus Christ is going to be glorified, and the Father will be glorified in him, Because the hour has now dawned for the glory of Christ, the glory of the Father to be revealed. But what is that? Well, verses 2, 3, and 4, they give us a bit more of an idea about the request that Jesus has in verse 1. And so it says, For you have granted him authority over all people, not over some people, doesn't say over some people, it says, but over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given to him. So what do we see? We see the emphasis of the supremacy 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 and verse 4, you may only know the one true God through Jesus Christ and his completed work. Jesus here, he claims exclusive rights to save sinners, to reveal God and to open up the pathway to those who will trust him. That's the claim of the Bible. That's the claim of Jesus, the claim of God. That's his policy. If you're in the Son, you have life. If you aren't, you're dead. That's the stark way of putting it. Now, that should make the matter of evangelism a pressing urgency, don't you think? Pressing urgency. We are not playing with rubber bullets here. There are people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this hour, the timeline that he's praying about is relevant to 21st century men and women right here because at that fixed point in time, as he was walking to the cross, he ushered in the last days. He ushered in the last days that would point to his eventual return. And so, as I was thinking about this, I was like, well, I presume that you could say, as Jesus died on the cross, if you could actually get a microphone and put it to the cross, the cross would call out to the world the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. And I think there's a couple of things it would call out. Firstly, I think it calls out the love of God. It calls out that the love of God is deep. It is wide. It is long. And it says to the world and every single individual, this is what your creator is like. He loves you to death. You know, non-believers need to have this explained because the cross to them is just a piece of history. Sometimes it's just a figment of imagination. It's something that we should probably just get over, forget about. But when you understand the dimensions of the love of Christ on the cross, you just can never get your head around it. It never ends. And so we need to actually explain this to non-believers and have it re-explained to us daily in some cases. The cross is where God put his flag in the ground. He put his flag in the ground in this world and he said, this is what I'm like. This is what my heart is like. This is what my character is like. This is what my attitude is like. That's what my policy is. But then the cross, it also calls out in a loud voice. But God is also a God of justice. And once you understand the cross, God can't just wink at sin. You know, God's not like us. He's not like us where we can go, well, you've done terrible things to me. I've done terrible things to you. But hey, let's just, let's just forget about it. God, God can't wink at sin. He is utterly holy and righteous. And he upholds the justice of the universe. And therefore, if there is sin, it's like a debt. And if there is a debt, that needs to be paid. And so in God's great mercy, in God's great mercy, he brings justice down upon his son in order that the believer might escape. I think the third thing the cross calls out is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. In other words, uh, you put all the smartest people in the world in a room together and ask them, uh, work out how to connect with God. 
Work out how to fix uh, relationships. They can't do it. And if you don't believe it, just watch the leaders and academics of this world try to solve the problem of broken relationships. What our world does uh, is helpful, yes, but they're band-aid solutions. It's more education, it's more teaching, more counselling, it's more strategies. And whilst they're good things here and now, they can be beneficial. What God does through the cross, he brings for the believer immediate reconciliation with God. Immediate reconciliation with God. And that begins to spill out into all of our Christian relationships. And that's what we want to be here, isn't it? We want that mercy, grace, wisdom pouring out in our relationships. And that causes these places, the gathering of believers, to be places of patience, to be places of kindness, to be an oasis in God's world. And the cross calls out the power of God. The power. No president, no prime minister can solve the issues in this world. You know, we hope. We always hope the next guy, the next guy will do it. But they can't. No billionaire, no army, no institution can do what God does through the cross. You know, the apparent weakness of the cross turns out to be the key power of God. The key power of God to bring people to himself and then begin the process of peace on earth. That's the peace on earth that spills out in our relationships. And so God bypasses all human greatness. He comes as a baby. He grows into his time as a man where he then ministers for three years. He dies and the apparent weakness on the cross and he changes eternity. And so the cross calls out to the world, do you want to know if God's loving? Look here. Do you want to know uh, if God is just? Look here. Do you want to know if he's wise? Look here. Do you want to know if he's powerful? Look here. Look to the cross. What will flow out of the death of Jesus will be the gift of eternal life. And friends, the definition of eternal life isn't that we just wait for one, one side. You know, we die and we wait and see him on the other side. Eternal life means that you know him now and you know him forever. You can walk out of the building and say, I know God. I am known by God. I am in a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father. But notice in verse 4 that Jesus' work on earth is finished. How many of us could put up a hand right now and say, you know, I've done everything perfectly in my life so far, to a T. You know, but that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus speaks in a way that communicates that what he's praying for has actually already been done. It's, in the original, it's in the perfect tense. This is a figure of speech that you use when you anticipate something with absolute certainty. And so what Jesus is stating is he's like, well... My death, my burial, my resurrection, it's as good as done. This work you gave me to do is done. And so when Jesus had offered a single sacrifice for all the sins, he sits down at the right hand of God. The word which Jesus uses here is, in Greek is teleosas, which is the same root of the word he uses in John 19. John 19, verse 30, where he's lying on, he's nailed to the cross and he cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
it is complete. Friends, in other words, here's the believer's confidence. When Satan tempts me to despair and when I'm aware of the wretchedness of my life, where do I retreat? When I have a bad week, when I have a bad day, sometimes when my faith would falter and no sunlight seems to even peek through in my life, sometimes when my prayers seem like they can't go any further than the roof of my car, where do I retreat? Do, do we retreat to the last time I did something great for God? Do we retreat to the last point that I felt good about myself? Do we retreat to the last time I felt good about my faith? I'll tell you where we go, friends. We go back to the cross. We go back to the glory of the cross. It calls out. And secondly, we have the glory of the crown. Have a look at verse 5. Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence. Father, glorify me in your presence. What does he mean? Well, you know when you've been on holiday, for me it's usually camping, or when you're going traveling overseas, and you, get, you eventually get to that point, and you're like, you know what, I'm a bit ready to go home. There comes a time where you're just ready to go and have your own bed, your own shower, your own towels. Basically, this is nothing like that. He, he doesn't just mean, I want to go ham, home to heaven and be comfortable. It's true that he was in glory before he came down to earth, but this prayer is that he would be in God's presence. More than I want to go home to heaven and be comfortable. He wants to be in God's presence. And it's not a selfish prayer. He is praying that the promise will be fulfilled, that he will finish the work that God has given him to do. You know? I want to rise to my place. I want to take the seat of the throne which you have planned for me. Planned for me and given all dominion, all glory, all power. That's what we read in the Colossians statement of faith today. Basically, he's praying to see this mission through to the end, knowing that it's already signed, sealed, it's going to happen, delivered. And the reason that he wants to do this is not just so that God could be glorified. It's not just so that, but it's that people would be saved. But as people are saved, they're saved through Jesus Christ in his name and that brings God glory. And so how do we apply this to us? As we grapple with Jesus' prayer today, how does that actually shape us? Why is it that so many of us don't come to Christ in prayer and relish that opportunity to communicate with our Father? Well, I was just reflecting, I think for me, it's, it's pride. We tend to lean towards believing in ourselves, believing in our own wills, believing in our own plans that our will be done, not yours. And so when we pray, we tend to pray when things are uncertain. We tend to pray when we want a circumstance change. We tend to pray when there's something that we want. We often pray and want God to conform to our agenda. But what do we see? Jesus flips it perfect obedience. He prays that God may be glorified through him. What we see here in the opening lines is this depth of relationship with the Father. That's the purpose of prayer. It's of prayer. It's opening yourself up to God. It's communicating with him, seeking to align your heart with God's. I said, we often can see prayer like a supplement to our Christian faith. 
like a supplement, but Jesus views it as his meaty food. And what does Jesus ask for? He prays for glory. Glorify me. But again, it's not selfish because Jesus is saying, bring glory to me, but far greater, far greater for the purpose, the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to yourself, glory to the Father. And like I said, Jesus is unique. We can't pray this. We can't pray uh, what Jesus prayed, that we would be the saviour of the world, that we would go back to being God's presence at the right hand, seated on a throne. But we can apply it to ourselves. We can apply it to ourselves as we seek to align ourselves with his will, to see his name glorified above all else. So friends, that's a question. Is, has that gripped your heart? Has God's glory gripped your heart? All the greatest prayers in the Bible are show us your glory, God. Moses, Isaiah, Paul, you see it littered throughout the scriptures. Show us your glory. And Jesus teaches here that his priority is that his work would be completed, that he would go through the cross and to the crown. And so we just, friends, we need to learn the priority. Jesus' priority in this world is that his glory would be recognized. We need to pray this. We need to pray this. I can't tell you how important that is. Just imagine you're going through a bad time at the moment or you're in a really bad mood. There's nothing that really matters to you. Some codgers up here yakking on, you don't really care. But you've got to come to a point saying, dear God, there is something more important here. There's something more important than my bad mood, and that's that you are glorified. Because out of his glory, everything good spills out. Imagine that you're really flat, you're low, you're frightened, and you're anxious. There's got to be a point where you come to your heavenly Father and you say, in the middle of all of this, be glorified. That is the greatest priority out of which everything good flows. So however you are feeling today, wherever you find yourself in the midst of all of this, friends, be thinking, God, may you be glorified in all these things. And notice that Jesus takes hold of God's promises when he prays. If you want some fuel for your prayers, take hold of the promises. I've got a sheet on my desk, a bunch of verses. And so I, I commend that to you. Have that there, accessible all the times. Let your requests be made known to God. Cast all your cares on him. Do not be anxious. Come to the throne of grace. These things fuel your prayers. We need the promises of God to fuel our prayers. And Jesus, you see, he's got so many things that he said. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm the good shepherd that lays down his life. I'm preparing a place for you. And he might have said, well, I've made all these promises. That's all. But actually what he does is he takes those promises and he turns them into prayers. You and I have got to take those promises of God, let them fuel our prayers, fuel our encouragement, fuel our assurance. But to keep the main thing the main thing, that God would be glorified. So guard your, your prayers, friends. One meaningful sentence is far better than nothing. One meaningful sentence. Guard, start small, be intentional. Slowly your appetite will grow. Just start the day something real, honest, vulnerable. Come to your Father. God's promised to hear us. He's like a parent who hears the, the cry of their child and grabs their attention. 
God says, pray to me. He hears the cry of his children. He's pleased to answer. Friends, might we be gripped by the loss? Might we be gripped by God's glory? But we can be rest assured that Jesus has finished everything on that cross. It is finished. To God be the glory, the power, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can stand on this side of redemptive history to see the drama of redemption unfold in your scriptures, that you've blessed us with your word that speaks into our lives, that your spirit stirs us, changes us and shapes us. Lord, I just pray that we would come to you, come to you and want to feed, feed on your glorious riches. Lord, that we would know that you are a father who loves us, cares to listen. And Father, I pray that we would see, seek to see your name glorified above all else. In the hurt, in the pain, in the struggles, Father, may we see you, know that you are sovereign, and call for your glory. Amen.